What a wonderful song. Uh, Jesus is mine. And as we were singing it, I was drawn to Ecclesiastes 1-2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And, and a beautiful reminder that we could lose everything and we would be the richest people of all to claim Jesus is mine. So often we get focused on this world, the comfort of this world, the relationships we have in this world. And, and the preacher in Ecclesiastes says it's all vanity. Apart from Christ, it is all vanity. And so what a, what a beautiful reminder to seeing this morning. If you'll turn your Bibles to John chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, hopefully there's one located in the seat in front of you. Alistair Begg shares a story one time about visiting a church and preparing to worship with this church on Sunday morning. I'm going to try and articulate his story, but I can guarantee you that I won't do it as well as he can. And so when we leave here, not right now, but when we leave here, if you get the chance, search Alistair Begg worship and listen to him articulate this story. But he speaks of visiting this church on a Sunday morning to worship. And as he sits and on the screen, there's a countdown and it starts with five minutes and, and the anticipation seems to be rising and it goes to three minutes and all of a sudden it's 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, and it gets to zero and he sits with anticipation wondering what's going to happen when it gets to zero. And, and the band comes out and the person leading praise asked, hey, how do you feel this morning and Beg responds, if I told you how I feel, you would question if I was even a Christian at all. Don't ask me how I feel. Ask me what I know about God. Ask me what I know about his word. Don't make me sing about how I feel. I can't start there. It's early in the morning on the way out of the house. I kicked my dog even though I don't have a dog. I argued with someone who took my parking space, I spilled my coffee, I didn't read my Bible, I'm a miserable wretch, and you want to start with how are you feeling, I feel rotten, that's how I feel, what do you have for me? I am grateful that here at LifePoint we worship under what is called often the regulative principle, that we worship in the way that scripture has laid out that we ought to worship. I am grateful for the work that, that Brother Brian does in combing through songs to make sure that we are singing biblical truth and not purely extra biblical emotionalism. I am grateful for the truth of Scripture. I'm grateful that we have God the Spirit using the Word of God to pierce the hearts of sinful men because I am a sinful man. And far too often we enter into worship and we want to have our ears tickled. We want to leave worship feeling better about who we are or motivated to be a better moral person. Far too little do we desire for the Word of God to discipline us, to correct us, to challenge us, to cut us, to wound us. And so often we harden our hearts to the truth of Scripture but the word of God doesn't just wound us, it's a balm to our soul. When the word of God corrects us and disciplines us and wounds us, it's in those moments that we are drawing closer to Christ. 
And so my prayer this morning is that Scripture would, would be both a rod of discipline and a comfort to each and every one of us this morning. And so with that in mind, if you will do honor to the reading of God's Word and stand as we read John 21, 1 through 19. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And so they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, shore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus asked, said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus had revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to them, tend to my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything, and you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me, if you will pray with me this morning. Heavenly Father, we come this morning. Father, we fail to recognize so often the seriousness of sin in our life. Father, that we only consider maybe the major sins and we fail to recognize how often we, we fail to glorify and praise you and to give you worth and honor due your holy name. Father, we have trivialized repentance in our day and age. And I pray this morning as we consider repentance in the light of Scripture that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear your holy word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. I think I understand why Jay takes this off. Ooh. Plus, I just wanted to do it. 
This morning we're going to focus in on John 21, verses specifically 15 through 19. We read the whole text to give us some context. And often when we come to this passage, the focus is on Jesus' question, do you love me? And, and the focus is on the Greek use of the word love. And, and, and while I believe that is important because John uses two different words of love in, in this passage, and maybe it's something that we'll look at in the future, Lord willing, this morning I want to look at the dialogue between Jesus and Peter because I believe it gives us an important look at what repentance is in the repentance, restoration, and call of Peter. And what we know about Peter is Peter is a passionate man. We often, we often cast rocks at Peter or we, we, we focus on his failure to have enough faith in Jesus as he's walking on the water to Christ and he takes his eyes off of Christ and puts them on the waves and he begins to, see, to, to, to sink but Peter is the one, when all the disciples believed that it was a ghost walking on, on the water, calls out to Jesus and says, Lord, if, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. It is Peter who, when asked, who do, do you say that I am, boldly proclaims, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And shortly after this statement, when Jesus reveals that he must Die, Peter rebukes the Lord and says, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And it's Peter who resolutely denies that he would ever deny Christ. And it is Peter who weeps bitterly when he does. It is Peter in this passage when he recognizes that it is the Lord on the shore, throws himself into the sea and swims to the shore, leaving the other disciples. Peter is a large and loud and passionate man in scripture who is at times proud and boastful but as often as peter is proud and boastful in his statements we find him as equally grieved and weeping over his sin and so i think in fact in order to understand this passage this morning we must recognize peter's repentance so Jesus begins by asking Peter the first question, do you love me more than these? What is Jesus asking him? Do you love me more than these? Is he asking Peter, do you love me more than you love the disciples? But in the context of this passage, that wouldn't make any sense. Or maybe some theologians believe that, that Peter and the disciples had abandoned following Christ and they had gotten a fishing boat and they resumed their career that they had left three years earlier. And so when Jesus asked him, do you love me more than these? He's asking him, do you love me more than your career? Do you love me more than the boats and the nets and the fishing? Do you love me more than your earthly stability? Yet I think with the following lines, this isn't the correct understanding either. I believe that Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me more than the other disciples love me. I believe Jesus here is pointing back to Peter's statement on the Mount of Olives right after the Lord's Supper, a few hours before he's crucified, a few hours before Peter denies Christ. In Matthew 26, 30 through 33, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised, I will go before you 
to Galilee, which is where this is taking place at this time. And Peter answered him, though they, will, though they will all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And within hours, Peter would deny Christ, the only true disciple who denies Christ before men. And then here is Jesus on the shore of Galilee, fulfilling this promise. And he's asking Peter, do you love me more than these here is Peter who proudly once proclaimed, Jesus Christ, though, though Thomas may forsake you, though Nathaniel may forsake you, though the sons of Zebedee, though these other disciples may forsake you, I will never leave you, not me. And in Peter and his arrogance and his pride is, is, is taking this statement of the Lord and saying, that's not going to come to pass. And Peter in this moment is reminded of his boasting and his own strength. Peter makes this statement, I will never forsake you in his own strength. He, he pulls out a sword and he cuts at the guard in his own strength. Peter, a man in his own strength who ends up denying Christ three times before the rooster crows. I believe Jesus is asking him, Peter, do you love me more than these disciples. At one time, you said on the Mount of Olives that although they would fall away, you wouldn't. Do you love me more than these? And Peter's response is not, yes, I love you more than they do. His response is a humbled, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Peter is aware of his boastfulness. He's aware of his pride. He's aware of his sin. And he's showing genuine repentance for his Pride. Peter's focus is no longer on being the top disciple in the, in the kingdom of God because he understands that he was the top disciple who denied Christ. He was the top disciple who fell away. And it is after this first question when Peter answers him, Jesus doesn't ask the question again in the same way. He never asked Peter the second or the third time, do you love me more than these? Because I believe Peter is in repentance in this first part. And then we get to the last question in verse 17. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. and You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Peter is grieved in this moment. The third time Jesus asked if he loved him because Jesus, Peter is being brought back to his threefold denial of Christ. He's being brought back to the reality that he didn't deny Christ once. He didn't deny Christ twice. He denied Christ three times. He's not grieved because Jesus didn't believe if Peter loved him. He's grieved because of his sin against his Lord and Savior. And for the first time since the resurrection, Peter's being confronted about his sin of denial. When we see in this passage, repentance is a mark of a true believer. If we are never grieved in our sins, we must hear the words of Jesus Christ, do you love me? Because we cannot love Christ and love sin. To love sin is to hate Christ and to love Christ is to hate sin. To hate sin so much that we are grieved and we weep bitterly over the sin against our Lord and Savior. Not in as woe is me fashion, 
but because of our rebellion to Christ. I think far too often we minimize sin. We categorize it. We hide it. We joke about it. Sin is something bad. Sin is missing the mark. But what recognizes is sin is our attempt to rob God of his glory every single time. If you lied to your spouse this week, you robbed God of his glory. If you responded in unrighteous anger this week, you attempted to rob the creator of the heavens of earth, glory that is due his name. If you're sitting here this morning up and proud because you don't sin like other people, you are sinning against the almighty God of heaven who is the only one worthy of worship and honor and praise and attempting to sit on the throne of God. Peter does not weep over sin against Christ because it was merely something bad. He weeps over sin because it is rebellion against his Lord and Savior. He committed treason against the Lord of heaven. But it's not just Peter's generic, general sin that he grieves over. He grieves over his specific sin. I find far too often we come to the Lord, forgive me of my sin. And we, we, we take repentance and we throw it out as if it's a blanket that covers a multitude of sin. But repentance isn't a blanket that covers sin. It is a stake that drives to the heart of sinful men. Repentance requires us to acknowledge our specific sins against the Lord. And so when we gather here and we do our corporate confession, there is an aspect that is general, that applies to all men. But then we have the opportunity for us to each sit down and confess our individual specific sins against the Lord. We must repent of our actual sin against Christ. Christ asked Peter three times, do you love me? To reveal to Peter and the disciples Peter's need for repentance for a sin of pride and rejection. Yet repentance is so often a doctrine that is ignored in the modern church. For the past 200 years, we've attempted to, to the modern church has attempted to cast off its historical roots, its, its traditions, making faith solely about the individual. That your faith between God and you is between just you and God. It has nothing to do with the church. It, takes, it robs the church of the confessional ability in favor of unfettered freedom. Who are you to call me to repentance? Who are you to tell me to repent of my sin? Who are you to confront me about sin in my life? Because it is my faith. It is between me and God. Faith that was once communal, theological, doctrinal, robust has been replaced with individual lack of accountability, watered-down faith that has thrown open the doors for false teaching in the church. What does it have to do with repentance? It's because we've adopted primarily an individual faith that we've taken away the call to repentance. We focus so much on forgiveness that we forget to call men and women to repent of their sins and to turn to Christ. That, that, that in your faith, if you just pray, Lord, forgive me of my sins, then you'll be forgiven and, and, and you're good to go for the rest of your walk. We focus so much on the forgiveness of sins that we don't call the sinner to repent, to grieve over, to turn away, to mortify, to put to death the sins of the flesh. 
I love that quote that Brian brought up this morning of John Owens. We ought to be putting sin to death or sin will be putting us to death. And I know I butchered that and I paraphrased it. But the fact remains that if we are not actively seeking out sin in our life, if we're not actively being repentant of sin in our life, sin will kill us. That it's not a doctrine that we preach. It's not a doctrine that's pleasant. It's not a doctrine that tickles the ear. It's not a doctrine that's going to draw in the crowds. We just need to preach forgiveness. And we never talk about repentance. In the book of Matthew, the first words of John the Baptist are recorded in chapter 3, verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The first preached words of recorded of Jesus' ministry in in chapter 4, verse 17 of Matthew. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The first sermon that we have on the the day of Pentecost, when the men ask, What must we do to be saved? Peter tells them in Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. The gospel is a call to repentance. Anything less is not the full gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that forgiveness of sins is wrong. It's very much right. But it only comes in the context of repentance. It never comes apart from it. I'm also not saying that salvation is a works-based system, that you must do certain things. Even our repentance hearts our gift of grace from God. That we wouldn't even recognize our sin. We wouldn't even hate our sin had God not brought us to life to begin with. So salvation is all of God, yet we are still called to repent. So I'm not saying forgiveness of sins is wrong, but what I am saying is that when we stop calling men and women to repentance, then we stop preaching the full gospel of Jesus Christ. Repent And believe two sides of the same coin. We talk about repentance as being a turning away from sin. And belief is a turning to Christ. And in a way of illustration, I'm not much of an illustration person. If I'm turning away from sin and I'm turning to Christ. And the same act of turning is belief and repentance. We never see in scripture belief in God, faith in God that is evident in unrepentant men. And we never see repentance that isn't tied to faith in God. And theologians will disagree which came first. And it is a good and important discussion to have. But I will tell you in Scripture you will not find one without the other. Scripture clearly tells us there's no faith in God apart from repentance and there is no repentance, true repentance, apart from faith in God. In our day, repentance is ignored because the gravity of our sin is not considered. One of the core doctrines of the church has been under attack with increasing regularity in the past several decades by men in pulpits leading churches And the doctrine that is under attack is the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. That's a big word, and maybe that's a word that that many of you have not heard before. But if I was to give you a summary of this doctrine, it's an understanding that when Jesus Christ 
went to the cross and he bore the sins, the actual sins for his people. God poured out his wrath upon Christ in our place for those sins, satisfying his wrath. God is just and justice is required and justice is paid in Jesus Christ for the saints. This is a doctrine that has been a part of the church since its inception because it's a doctrine that is found in the pages of Scripture. And fast forward 1,800 years, 1,900 years, and that would be too harsh. That would be too mean to say that God satisfies his wrath upon Jesus Christ. God is all-powerful. God is all-loving. God can just overlook the sins of man and forgive people as he wills. There's no need to satisfy and talk about the wrath of God. One of the songs I enjoy singing in Christ alone talks about the wrath of God is fully satisfied. And there was an uproar when that song came out because that was too harsh. And there was talk of let's change the lyrics of the song. And and, and what that is is an attempt to undermine the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. And what Christ ultimately becomes is he dies as an example for us. What it means to love each other and to lay down our life for each other. Christ's death no longer is satisfactory for the wrath of God. It's just something that he does as an example. And they call this doctrine, the penal substitutionary atonement, cosmic child abuse. And I can't think of a more vile word or a vile way to look at the cross. Because abuse in its term connotates injustice. And to say that God would be unjust upon Christ if he poured out his wrath is to deny the holy, just God of Scripture who demands payment for sin because he is holy and righteous. For nearly 1,800 years in church history, this is the doctrine we believed. And so when we cast off our doctrinal heritage and say it's not important, it really doesn't matter if we articulate the deep things of theology. All I have to need is no creed. But Christ, what we begin to preach is the gospel light version if a thing exists. And we fling open the doors for error. Do you want to know why so many generations walk away from the church? So we no longer have a message to proclaim. We no longer proclaim repent and be saved. We have a gospel that says, be who you are. God will forgive you. He'll overlook your sin. You don't have to strive for holiness. God loves you as you are. There's no message of hope there. It is be exactly who you are. There's no need to kill sin in your life. And it's just another form of antinomianism. Once you've been saved, God doesn't care what you do. The blood of Jesus Christ covers you. You can commit any sin that you want to commit. God loves you for who you are. That's why he saved you. And there's no call and constant call to repentance in the believer's life. And I think we should consider for a moment the story of two of Jesus' disciples. Peter and Judas. If we were to maybe rate them in the human flesh, we would have who we might rank number one, the top disciple, Peter. He's a spokesperson for the disciple. God uses him in a significant way in the early church. And then you have maybe number 12, Judas, obviously, because he betrayed Christ. Judas, out of the love 
for himself and comfort, betrays Christ and sells him for 30 pieces of silver. Peter, out of a love for himself, out of comfort, out of fear of man, denies Jesus Christ three times. They both deny Christ. They both deny the Son of the living God. Judas is sorry for what he did. Matthew 27, 3 through 4. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Peter likewise is sorry for what he did. Matthew 26, 74 through 75. Then he, Peter, began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. What's the difference? Judas was sorry, but Peter was grieved. Judas saw the consequences and didn't like the consequences and decided to have a mind change in the moment. But Peter is grieved, not because of the consequences, but because he has sinned against God. Judas expresses worldly grief. Peter expresses godly grief, which leads to repentance. And Paul echoes this in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The Puritan Thomas Watson in his book, um, The Doctrine of Repentance, if you've never read it, it's just, it's a great book. I would encourage you to read it. He notes well, such as will not weep with Peter shall weep like Judas. That as believers in Christ, we are called not to be sorry for our sin, not to be sorry because when a thief gets caught, A thief doesn't want to accept the consequences and a thief feels bad because he's going to jail. We are called to repent because we are grieved over our sin. Why is the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement so important? Because it recognizes that Jesus Christ suffered the almighty wrath of God for specific sins of his people. He suffered for the actual sins of his people. And we begin to preach that Jesus generally died for general people. We begin to minimize sin. And we begin to not consider the weight and sin becomes not really that big of a deal. But when we preach that Jesus died specifically for his people and he suffered the wrath of God for their specific sins, then our sins are a very big deal. Your lie to your wife, Jesus Christ, suffered for if you're in Christ on the cross. Your outburst of anger, Jesus Christ, suffered the full wrath of God for that sin on the cross. Every time we enter into worship and we consider all the things we could be doing instead of being here and we begin to rob God's glory, Jesus Christ, if you're in Christ, suffered for it on the cross. If our sin, each individual sin, past, present, and future, bears the full wrath of God, then it is satisfied in Christ. It gives us a great hope and assurance, but it also should grieve us that our sin 
required the full wrath of God upon our Savior on the cross. Every sin. Whether it be the sins you committed 10 years ago. Whether it be the sins you commit as soon as you walk out this door. Whether it be when you're driving home and you get frustrated and, 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 and argue with your spouse. Those sins are suffered in Christ. That's okay. God will, will forgive us willy-nilly. It's not that big of a deal. John 21, 17, Peter was grieved. Peter was grieved because by the grace of God, he recognized his sin of betrayal was paid for by the one who, who was looking him in the eyes, asking, do you love me? Jesus Christ paid for Peter's betrayal on the cross. And Peter recognizes his sin and recognizes that his sin is paid for in Christ. And he is grieved because he recognizes and understands that his sin of denial sent Jesus Christ to the cross. And Peter grieves over his sin. He repents and believes in Christ. He clings to Christ. You know all things. You know that I love you. That is true Biblical repentance, being grieved and turning from sin and clinging to the one who paid for our sin on the cross. Paying to the, pay, clinging to the one who suffered in our place. A Christian that is not repentant of sin does not exist in the pages of Scripture. A person... A Christian that considers the cost of the forgiveness of their sins and is not grieved by their sins, is not broken by their sins, does not exist in God's holy word. A believer is not marked by perfection. Though some have erroneously claimed we will attain, we will attain perfection in this life. A believer is not marked by perfection. It's marked by his repentance. His growing recognition that sin needs to be put to death and the only way it is put to death is by repenting of it and clinging to Christ by looking to Christ seeing his work on the cross and being grieved and then we must ask what if I sin egregiously so many people I think fall into a pit of despair because they believe their sin is too big for Christ to cover but not only is this passage about, I think, or, or repentance, it's about restoration. And, and Peter's repentance for sin, Christ is forgiving and restoring Peter to fellowship. It's what we've talked about in 1 John over the past few Sundays, that we may have fellowship with God. If we confess our sins, we have... Oh, I'm blinking on the word right now. Someone help me out. Advocate. Woo, Jay's going to get on to me for that one. We, <laughs> it gets worse. As it, there you go, brother. We have an advocate in heaven pleading our case. Peter's sin is a public sin which requires public repentance and public restoration. We notice in this passage, Jesus doesn't pull Peter to the side and say, Hey, I have something I want to talk to you about. In front of the disciples that Peter proudly boasted that he would never be like them. He would never deny Christ. Although they may all fall away, he would not fall away. In front of those very same disciples, Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? 
He brings into account the reality that Peter is the one that denied Christ before men, and he does so in the presence of the disciples. Jesus had set aside a ministry for Peter, and that ministry is covered in the shadow of Peter's rejection. And with this public repentance, Jesus is restoring Peter. Feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. With each answer that Peter gives, the Lord is declaring, I forgive you, now care for my sheep. Jesus, in fact, foretells of the fall of Peter that this might be fulfilled and that he would strengthen his brothers. Luke twenty-two, thirty-one through 32 Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter's denial and repentance and restoration should be a comfort for us. Peter denied the Lord and Savior of, and he is restored and he is forgiven. It should be a reality that there is no sin we commit that the blood of Christ cannot cover. It's one of the greatest lies is that our sin is so great Christ couldn't forgive us. It holds us hostage. You've already sinned. You might as well sin more. Look at all the bad things that you have done. Look how many times you've denied Christ. Look how often you have been rebellious. You should just continue rebelling against the Lord. And we find ourselves searing our conscience. But Peter, the Christ disciple who walked with them, who loved Christ, who witnessed the miracles of Christ, who said he would die with Christ, who denies Christ, repents of his sin, and is restored. It is covered by Christ's blood. And so we don't need to wallow in our sin. That what we're called to do as believers is to repent of our sin and be restored to fellowship with God the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have an enemy who stands and says, look what they did. Condemn them. Yes, Scripture declares, repent and be forgiven. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That is a comfort. Because as much as Peter sins, I guarantee you I sin more. And what a comfort to know that I can be forgiven. Now, unlike Peter, restoration doesn't mean you will always be put in the exact same position. You won't be given the exact same trust because sin breaks those things. But like Peter, we can be restored to the fellowship of God. We can be restored to the body. We can sing the praises of heaven. I think it's a great reminder for us as believers to forgive one another when we are sinned against. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, looks Peter in the eyes who has denied him three times and asks, do you love me? And in Peter's repentance, Jesus commands him to feed my sheep. We find forgiveness and fellowship in Christ. No one will sin against you greater than they've sinned against the God of heaven. And God forgives his children. How much more forgiving should we be? 
Far too often when we withhold forgiveness, it's because we forget how often we sin against God. Brian's sin against me is so much worse than my sin against Jesus Christ. How could I ever forgive Brian? How foolish of me. There is restoration in repentance. And then lastly, we see Christ's call to follow. Christ's call here is for Peter to follow in verse 19. This is to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Christ forewarns Peter the kind of death he will suffer. And we will ultimately see the forbearance of Peter's repentance. See, Peter didn't deny Christ and then say, I'm sorry, and then fall back into denying Christ. And say, I'm sorry, and then fall back into denying Christ. He denies Christ. He recognizes sin. He grieves over sin. He repents of his sin. And the next time that he is confronted with, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? He takes himself to the point of death. He is killed for his belief. He does not reject his Savior. The call to follow Christ is nothing short than a call to die to self and to live for Jesus. This is... I think one of the largest issues with the individualized faith is that we become so bogged down with our lives and our individuality that Christianity just becomes another tack of things that we have to do. I've got so much to do, then maybe I just won't head to church on Sunday or, or God loves and accepts me for as I am so I can live in any way that I want or your kids have a lot going on. Maybe you should skip church to do those things or you don't like the music you don't like the preference of of what they're doing there shop around find another church that might fill those preferences you don't have time to read scripture to pray it's too hard here's another netflix show we serve so often our comfort our desires our preferences that we fail to recognize and glorify god galatians 2 20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Or Paul in Philippians 1, 21, for me to live is Christ. This is our life in Christ, to live for Christ. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Let everything fade away, let everything pass for us to live is Christ. We gather together on Sunday morning, not because it's an obligation, not because it's a task, but because we gather with the saints and we praise the Lord, praise our Lord and Savior who has redeemed us to the cross. This is our call. We are called to die to ourselves, our comfort, our desire, our passion, our wants to follow Jesus Christ who died for us. Think of Christ, Philippians 2, 6-8. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus did not count equality with God something to be grasped. He humbled himself to pay a penalty for his people. Yet I can't give up some of my comforts for Christ. I can't give up some of my time to live for Christ. Christ is so often a burden 
to me. Christ calls Peter, follow me. You're going to die for your faith in me. Follow me. Feed my sheep. The call to follow is a call to a life of repentance and faith in the only one who deserves all glory and honor. So often we forget the beauty of the gospel. We consider the gospel to be something that takes place when we're saved. And so we begin to hear the gospel proclaim the life of Jesus, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We begin to tune out. Oh, I already know that. I took care of that. Yet the gospel is a daily reminder of our need for Christ. That God created all things. He created man and woman, Adam and Eve, and placed them in the garden. He declared that all things were good. That Adam sinned and so fell all of humanity. Had you been in the garden, Ray Douglas, you would have done no better than Adam. You would have sinned. Had I been in the garden, I would have sinned. All of mankind fell when Adam fell and we are born into sin. We don't sin because of choices we make. We sin because we are sinners. We sin because we hate God and we love ourselves. We can't stand that God sits on the throne and declares that he deserves glory and honor because of who he is. It's about me and my life. This is us in our lost state. This is who we are as such were some of or as such were all of you. And Jesus Christ did not count equality with God something to be grasped. He humbled himself. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life amongst sinful men. And he walked this earth in perfection, proclaiming the kingdom of God has come. Repent and believe. And he suffered the full wrath of God, not for general sins, not for some sins, not for sins of some people that might come. He suffered the wrath of God for the actual sins of his actual people, which he came to save. And he satisfied the wrath of God on the cross. And he was buried. And three days later, he resurrected and he ascended to heaven. And he sits at the right hand of God, drawing his church, his bride, to himself for the past 2,000 years. This is the gospel. This Jesus Christ, whom you crucified with your sins, sits at the right hand of God, saving for himself a people and the men in Acts 2, what must, we be, what must we do to be saved? And the answer for us this morning is no different than it was for them. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ as your only completed work for salvation. This should be a joy to the believer. It should be a call to the unbeliever. We are called throughout our life to repent and trust in Jesus Christ. If you will, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come this morning and no matter how much sin we put to death, we recognize that we still fall into sin far too often. Father God, we live in a day and age that has minimized the grotesqueness, the repulsiveness of sin. We joke about it, we laugh about it, we watch it on television. 
Father God, we engage in sin left and right and, and, and don't consider the reality that each of the sins of the people of God are born upon Christ on the cross. Father, we are often a miserable people. I pray this morning that you would bring us to repentance, that we would see our sin, our specific sins, and grieve and be heartbroken and weep, not because of fear of punishment, but because we have rebelled against our Savior. And Father, when we repent, I pray that you would comfort us with your word, that we have been saved. If there is anyone here this morning who has not come to Christ, or if there is a, a, a person here who has falsely thought they have been in Christ for so long, I pray that you would reveal their need for a Savior, that they live in rebellion to a holy, righteous God. And the only satisfaction for their sin is found in the blood of Jesus Christ, and they would repent and have faith in Christ and Christ alone. I pray this morning that that stays at the forefront of our mind as we live our lives, that we are be, to be a people in repentance.